Thank you, Steve and Joyce. Children are dismissed to junior church right now, so you may make your way to junior church. Uh, if you meet up with Karen in the back of the sanctuary, there, my mic's on now. Just, let me say that again. Children may be dismissed to junior church uh, at this point. And follow the crowd back to the junior church classroom. There's a few more going, heading out there. And we're going to be going to John chapter 20 here in just a moment. John chapter 20. So if you want to make your way to John chapter 20, one of the uh, four resurrection accounts in the Gospels, we're going to look at that here in just a moment. Uh, Before we look at John chapter 20, though, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, uh, several of you know, usually... A fairly detailed sermon manuscript in a detailed outline format is available for those that would like um, as you exit the sanctuary on the table to the left, not directly out, but if you turn down the hallway, you could pick that up as you leave. Uh, But I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15 at the very beginning, and and that's not in the sermon manuscripts that are published, so this is extra credit. And um, so 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And when he says fallen asleep right there, it's a euphemism for death. I mean, some have died, but most are still alive. And he's saying Jesus had appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12, and then 500 people all at once after the resurrection. Most people believe what Paul is writing right here, what I just read to you, was an early church creed. Paul did not write it himself. It was an early church creed. It's one of the defenses of the gospel that these things were written so early and they were spreading all around so early. And right here he's saying, Jesus, the risen Lord, appeared to 500 all at once. 1 Corinthians was written very early, possibly around 51, maybe even 49 AD, within 17 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul is basically saying right there, you could even go find them. You could go find some of these 500 people. You could talk to them about seeing the risen Lord. You could go talk to them and say, hey, did you really see, you know, did you see him beaten beyond recognition? Did you see him crucified? They say, yeah, yeah, we saw that happen. Did you see him buried? Yeah, we saw that. We knew where the tomb was. Did you see him after he was resurrected? Yes, we saw him resurrected. The Romans could have put this thing to bed, and, uh, but, and so could the Jews if they could have just showed Jesus' body in the tomb. But they couldn't do it because Jesus had risen from the dead. That happened so early, and there were so many witnesses declaring the proof, the defense, what we would call the apologia. That's a, a Greek word that means defense, where we get our word apology from. The defense of the gospel. In this here, an early church creed. Then it says in verse 7, Then he, that's Jesus, appeared to James. James. That's Jesus' half-brother. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, wrote that James was stoned to death as a Jewish heretic in AD 62. Why was he a heretic? Why was he a Jewish heretic? Because he believed Jesus was the Messiah. But he didn't when Jesus was alive. 
When Jesus was doing his public ministry, there's a point in the Gospels where the disciple, where, where his siblings, Jesus is teaching, and his siblings want to kind of take him away and, and hide him. You're kind of acting crazy, you know? But after the resurrection, at some point, his half-brother, James, came to faith as well. And then he appeared to all the apostles. Paul says in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, Paul is saying about himself, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul is sharing an early church creed about the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 15 a little bit. In a little bit, we'll come back to the end of 1 Corinthians 15. But what I want to share, the reason I'm sharing that right now is I want to share, this is not a fairy tale. Oftentimes, we forget who we are and who God is. There was a New York Times article written in the opinion uh, page just a few days ago saying something of the effect, real short article, three minutes, saying, on this Passover weekend, let's forget God. And somebody shared it with me, and I read it, and I thought, he came from a Jewish background, and he writes about that, then writes about why we should forget God. And I thought, we only say that because we forget who we are and we forget who God is. We have sinned against a holy, righteous God. We don't think our sins are that bad, do we? That's because we're comparing ourselves with the people we see on the news or other people we know. God's standard is perfection and holiness and righteousness. Certainly, Horrible things have been done in the name of God that are without excuse. Because we're all sinners saved by grace. And we need God's grace. We need the risen Lord. Another time, another place, I was sitting through a Good Friday service. I was living in Cincinnati at the time, serving as an associate pastor. And uh, something hit me, something made me think, what would my life be like without Christ? I had known Christ for several years by that point. I was in, I think, my last year of seminary. I had already been through a Bachelor of Arts degree in pastoral studies and felt a call to a call to ministry about eight years previously at that point, I think, maybe even nine years. But I thought, what would my life be like without Christ? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, where would you be without Jesus in your life? What would your life be like without Jesus in your life? I've heard some say that they would be dead. That may be true. They were living a pretty reckless life. And then God got a hold of them, right? I heard this past week, uh, Breakpoint podcast. Breakpoint is through the Colson Center for Biblical Worldview. And I heard a podcast of someone who spent, I think, seven years in jail. And his, and his mother prayed him into jail. He was going in through dental school, but he got into drugs. He got kicked out of dental school, moved to Moved to Atlanta, Georgia. He's way into drugs. Sometime during this process, his mother and father were saved. and His mother and father were praying diligently for him. He gets caught. 
a bunch of drug enforcement officers, police officers show up with German shepherds at his door, and you usually take that pretty seriously, um, if not the officers, the German shepherds. And, and so he gets caught, and he goes to court, and his mom testified in court and said he needs to go to jail. Chuck Colson said the same thing. He said jail was the best thing that happened to him. He went to jail for uh, President Nixon for Watergate, and he was saved right before going to jail, reading Mere Christianity. And same thing happened with this, uh, this young man. His mom fasted every, every Monday and prayed for her son. And she got something like 100 other people to pray for her son. She fasted for 37 days praying for her son. She tied a yellow ribbon around an oak tree when he got out of jail, showing that I still love you, I still care about you. And he came home, and, and he's a committed Christian now. But he was on a trajectory towards death, and God intervened. Where would you be without Christ right now. I thought about this for myself. Without Jesus in my life, I would have no hope. I would not know about the future. Funerals would be difficult uh, uh, for me because I would not know about eternal life, uh, nor would I have any confidence in eternal life. Right now, I have confidence in in eternal life. I have pastored a lot of funerals. And I have confidence in eternal life because I know Jesus. But without Jesus, it would be different. Without Jesus in my life, funerals would always be a reminder of the reality of death. Without Jesus in my life, I would have no moral grounding. No grounding of what is right and what is wrong. We're in a society really struggling with that, aren't we? I mean, we had the slap heard around the world two weeks ago, right, at the Oscars, where Will Smith uh, slapped Chris Rock. Still wonder if it was set up, but, you know, we had the slap heard around the world. And the joke was Hollywood, which has very little moral grounding, was saying that was wrong. I get my moral grounding from the Bible. I get my moral grounding from God's revelation to, to, to me through his word. I get my moral grounding from the Holy Spirit in my life, convicting me of right and wrong. Without Jesus in my life, I would not have that. What do you, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Without Jesus, I would not be bound by the biblical values of right and wrong. There's no telling what I'd be into. If you read Galatians 5, 19, uh, Paul says the, the, the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh, the works of the world are evident. And he talks about lies and envy and strife and jealousy and murder and rage. But then he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Without Jesus in my life, I may have many idols to replace him. And these could be drugs, alcohol, adultery, pornography, or maybe it's work. Maybe it's sports. Anything else that just gives me pleasure and gives me satisfaction, gives me gratification, and makes me feel good and gives me pride of life would be an idol instead of Jesus. And we see that all around the world today. Maybe you're dealing with, even as Christians, we deal with them, but we deal with them differently because hopefully we're on a process. We're on a path to conquer them. We're on a path to live for Jesus and not for the world. And when we struggle, we pray and we say, oh, Lord, help me. Help me to have my satisfaction in you. Help me to have my desire in you. Help me, help me to be happy in you. Help my joy to be in you. Not in all these other things, which may go away. Without Jesus in my life, I would not have the community of the church. Read Acts 2, 42 through 47 about the body of Christ. 
Without Jesus in my life, I would not have the wisdom and knowledge of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus in my life, I would not have the Holy Spirit and I would be all alone. The Holy Spirit helps one to understand and apply the Bible. The Holy Spirit works in the community of the church. The Holy Spirit teaches and helps, and helps a believer, each believer. Romans 8, 9 says, if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You are not alone. Sometimes we may feel alone, but ultimately we are never alone. Without Jesus in my life, I would be lost in darkness with no hope for now or for eternity. What would your life be like without Christ? We know right now that our society is facing record levels of anxiety, record levels of depression, record levels of mental illness. And Christians do face them too, but we do have a different hope. We have a different desire, a different satisfaction. We have the Holy Spirit with us. Do you believe that? Do you know that? That's what I want to talk to you about for a minute. Think with me about how Jesus has impacted your life. Are you saved? Are you set free from sin? Do you live for sin or do you live for Jesus? And I'm not just talking about the big name sins. I'm talking even about pride and envy and and, and money and other idols. Even anxiety can be a sign that we're not really trusting in the Lord. Now, sometimes there's other chemical imbalances that cause that, but it can be a sign also that we're really not trusting the Lord. What are we afraid of? American Christians pray too much for safety. We had a great speaker yesterday at Men's Breakfast, John Reiser from Damascus Friends. He said that, that very thing, and it's very true. We never promise safety. I think that Christians suffer more than others because that's God's sanctifying work. He gives us everything we want. We don't trust in him. We leave him. Happens every time. Do you live in the kingdom of heaven? Or the fallen world? What was your life like before you came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? What has your Christian life been like? What is your future like as a Christian? When you go to funerals, what emotions go through your head? If you go to the doctor and you have a scare, maybe cancer or another disease, is there a fear of death? or maybe a fear of the pain and the suffering that you have to go through. And those are two different things. Let's read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, notice that it is a woman going to the tomb first. And this is a proof of Christianity because in the first century, during this day and age, if this was made up, they would never use a woman as a witness. A woman in the Greco-Roman world of this time period was not an acceptable witness. This is a proof. So she sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The tomb would have a stone, possibly one ton, probably around one ton in front of a big stone, possibly round and possibly in a little um, track, which could be rolled back and forth. And the stone was in front of the tomb. So she ran. She was a runner. She ran and went to Simon Peter 
and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, who is they? Who are they? Get this, at this point, she did not realize the resurrection. In that day and age, I think I shared this last Sunday, in that day and age, they, the Jewish people, they would not know the Savior was to be killed and then resurrected. When your Savior dies, they would have been looking for a new Savior because they didn't realize how this was going to work. So she's saying they've taken away. Verse three, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. It was a trail run. <laughs> but the other disciple, probably John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He was a cross-country guy, I guess. And then verse 6. Then Simon Peter came. He had to catch up. He's catching his breath outside the tomb. And he came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths that lying there, the grave clothes. He saw them lying there. And he saw the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first... Probably John also went in. So Peter, uh, John reached the tomb first. Peter catches up but enters the tomb first. Then John enters the tomb. And verse 9 says, oh, verse 8 says, and he went in and he saw and believed. It clicked. It made sense. He saw and believed. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The resurrection changes everything. We're going to close the sermon in a little bit. Not yet, but in a little bit. We're going to close the sermon and then close the service with because he lives. But I, I want to read some of the words of because he lives right now. It's one of my favorite resurrection Sunday hymns. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died by my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. Do you realize that? If he doesn't live, then the gospel's in vain because it would not be valid. He, he was dead. He was a dead savior. But he rose again. It proves the gospel. And because he lives, we too can live again. And because he lives, life is worth the living. Our lives are not in vain. A baby's life is not in vain. Because he lives, that baby can grow up and know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when God takes that baby to be with him in heaven, whether 99 years old or two years old, that baby is with God in heaven. And same thing for us. Our life is not in vain because because he lives, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds a future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day, I'll cross the river. River is metaphorical here of death. Probably know that. I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory 
and I know he lives. One of my favorite subjects to study is heaven. The Bible tells a lot of teaching on heaven. It's in Revelation 21 and 22 and Isaiah 65 and 66, Isaiah 60, uh, Luke uh, 17, many other passages about heaven. Just finished a book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Heaven. I've preached on heaven. We don't focus on heaven enough, but it is victory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we have hope because he lives. We can face tomorrow. I want to talk about what the resurrection means. And I want to start with the need for the resurrection. And I want to start talking about sin. Because of sin, we have death. Genesis 2.17 and 3.19 talk about the the consequence of sin, which is death. Get this. We were created to live forever. We were created to live forever. All, All of you, all of us, we were created to live eternal. What do you think it means to be created in the image of God? It's not appearance, at least I don't think it is appearance. I believe it is that we have emotions and God has emotions. Do you realize that? There's a book called, Am I More Than Just a Brain? Lee Strobel interviewed the author in his book, The Case for Heaven. I heard an interview with the author a few years ago. They cannot really prove consciousness. They can do a lot of mapping and scientific discoveries of the brain. They can't really prove consciousness. They can't figure out that part. And they've only mapped like 0.001% of the brain. It is just amazing. We are truly fearfully and wonderfully made, but we also have a soul. And we were created to live forever. We are physical and God is physical. We are spiritual and God is spiritual. In John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth. In Genesis 2, 7, we find that God breathed into man the breath of life. I believe this God, at this point, God made human beings into spiritual beings. We don't see God doing this for the animals. I'm not saying your pet's not in heaven. That's another discussion. I'm just saying we are different. There's a different view of biblical manhood and womanhood and what it means to be human from a biblical worldview. This is only for humans. God created us to live forever. And we take, and we take from the tree of life, which is going to be in the new heaven and new earth, the tree of life. We will live forever with God. We were created to live forever with God or separated from him. But God told them that they, they, that they cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or they will die. That's Genesis 2.17. They cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or they will die. All throughout the book of Genesis, it is emphasized again and again and again and again and again. And they died. And they died. They lived this long 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 and they died. And everyone except for two people has died since. Elijah and Enoch are the two people, in case you're wondering. They... We're just caught up in glory. As far as we know, they did not die. But even in death, we were still spiritual. We were still created to live spiritually, to live eternally. So even in the Old Testament, we have this term titled Sheol. And this is the, the same as the Greek word for Hades. And it's the consequence of sin. And we see it in the Old Testament, the consequence of sin. How else are we to go to God? The Old Testament teaches that God is too pure to behold sin. That's in uh, Psalm, uh, 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 Psalm 66, 18. It says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not hear my prayer. God is holy. God is pure. And our sin is a violation against him. It is high treason against him. And he is too pure to behold sin. Romans 3.23 teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
The Bible even says that we have placed a separation between God and us for the fact that we have sinned. That's in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Our sin separates us from God. When Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned, sinned, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They were separated from God. Again, we don't think of it that way because we're looking at the wrong standard. God's standard is perfection. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9, the Bible says that those who do not know God will be punished. Yet God loves us. God is just. So our sin separates us from God. Those who do not know God will be punished. And also, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, God says that he loves the people of the world. And he's waiting to come back and make things right so that more can be saved. God desires that all people are saved, that all people come to know him as Lord and Savior. Yet God has given us free will. And we have this dilemma where God loves us and he wants a relationship with us. But our sin is a violation against him. And God has already set a standard saying that he can't lie, that he is just, that he will punish sin. But he loves us. And that is a dilemma. It's a dilemma solved by the cross. Think about this way. There is this government leader guy, let's call his name Garcia. Garcia's people are starving and food has been rationed. Food has been rationed. One morning he's learning that somebody is stealing from the food supply. Food is rationed. People are starving, which is common for most people throughout world history. Food is rationed. People are starving. And, and somebody's stealing from the food supply. So Garcia says, with everyone as a witness, he says, the stealing must stop. If the stealing does not stop and the thief is caught, that thief will be beaten to the point of death. Everybody hears that. Everybody hears it. Garcia says it with everyone as a witness. The stealing stops for about a week and then it begins again. The thief is caught. Garcia's people come to him and say, the thief has been caught, Garcia, and the thief is your mother. Now, Garcia has said with everyone as a witness, if the stealing starts again and the thief is caught, the thief will be beaten to the point of death. Now, he could say, I'm going to make an exception because it's my mother, but that is breaking his word. Nobody would trust him again. People would look down on any type of judge that does that. He would not be a just judge. He cannot go back on his word without going against his own authority. In the same way, God says that he is unchanging and that he won't change his mind. That's in 1 Samuel 15, 29. God had already declared that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Exodus 34, 7. And because we committed the crime, we must face the consequences. God can't tell a liar. He wouldn't be God. Numbers 23, 19. It's kind of like signing a contract. Would we trust somebody who violated a contract? No, we would not. God had said these things. God's standard is holiness, perfection, and righteousness. There's punishment for violating that consequence. God can't go back on his word without marring his character. God can't just forget the sin. So he must have come up with something to erase them completely. And this is where the good news comes in. This is the gospel. This is why the cross was necessary. Because of Jesus and the resurrection, we have life. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty five through fifty seven. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus substituted Himself in our place on the cross. When he went to the cross, he took your sin and my sin and the world's sin upon himself. Later in Colossians, Paul writes, Colossians 2, I wanna say around verse nine, our sins are nailed to the cross. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. Now you may ask, and I'm glad that you're thinking this, I'm sure you are, how could Jesus do that? Well, there are a few things we needed. We needed a human sacrifice. Sins were committed by human beings. We needed a human sacrifice. So God became a human being. It's called the incarnation. God took on flesh. We needed a human sacrifice. That's one thing we needed. Secondly, we needed a perfect sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice. So Jesus never once sinned. If Jesus had sinned, he would have had to pay for his own sin, not ours. So he was sinless, he was human, and he was and is still God, fully human and fully God. Only someone fully God could withstand the penalty for sin for all of humanity. He took hell for every single person who ever lives or ever will live, but we do have to believe in him and trust in him. We do not have to fear death anymore. We were created to live forever and under sin. We could, uh, and under sin, we would have to fear death because death brought judgment. But now under Christ, we no longer have to fear death. Jesus took our punishment. We were created to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. Because Jesus lives, we will live eternally in paradise. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We have life. Our life would be in vain if it were not for the resurrection. I mean, if it were not for the resurrection, we could live our best life now, but that is it. But because of the resurrection, we can have hope for all eternity in heaven. It's because of the resurrection that it is sweet to hold a newborn baby, as the hymn says. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. It's because Jesus lives that we can have a relationship with him. Jesus did not just save us from our sins, He reconciled us to God the Father. He sent us the Holy Spirit. He adopted us into God's family. It is so much more. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his own righteousness so that when the Heavenly Father sees us, he sees Jesus' righteousness in us. We can have a relationship with Jesus. The resurrection separates Christianity from other religions. Our Savior lives, we will live again. Death no longer has a sting. There's many other religions where they can go to a holy site. They can go to the site of one of their founders and things like that, not in Christianity. And we can go to Israel and things like that, but there's no grave that we can go to where our Savior's body is. There's not a grave because he, he lives again. He is in heaven interceding for us. And this is a case with you. You also can have eternal life in Jesus. You can have a relationship with him. Where are you at in your life right now? Do you know him? Have you trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you know that since he lives, you will live eternally? Do you believe that? Do you know that your sins are washed away by Jesus? Do you know that you do not face life's challenges alone? Is it the case for you that because Jesus lives, you can face tomorrow? Think about this question. Does the resurrection give you hope? We read a story about a professor Professor was teaching a class, 
and he wanted to demonstrate the truth of what Jesus did on the cross. So he had an athlete in his class, a really buff, you know, strong athlete. And he asked the athlete, how many push-ups do you do a day? And the athlete said he does 300 push-ups a day. 300 push-ups a day. That's a lot of push-ups, okay? And so the following Friday, the professor, it was the last day of class, so the professor wanted to have a party. So he brought in some of the best donuts, you know, the best donuts that you can get, like, you know, Dutch House donuts, some of the best donuts. You, I like donuts, just so you know. Dutch House has really good donuts, some of the best donuts that you can get. You know, imagine the icing on them, everything, great donuts. And he said, anyone in class can have a donut, but for them to get their donut, a particular student, his name is Steve, Steve has to do 10 push-ups. So he starts going down the first row. And he asks the first person in the first row, would you like a donut? She says, yes. Steve, get down and do 10 push-ups. Steve does 10 push-ups. She gets the donut. Goes to the next person. Would ask a gentleman, would you like a donut? Yeah, I'd love a donut. Steve has to get down and do 10 push-ups. It's a big class. So later on, he keeps going down the first row. And... And, and, you know, the 10th person. So then Steve's done 100 push-ups. He goes to the next row. And people are starting to feel bad for Steve because they have to keep making him do push-ups so that they can get a donut. So there's a nice, you know, compassionate young lady in the second row. And she feels bad for Steve. So she says, I don't want a donut. I don't want Steve to have to do the push-ups. So he says, Steve, you have to do the 10 push-ups so that she cannot have a donut. People are starting to feel really bad. The professor goes in the hallway. There's other people, and he says, I got enough donuts. Would you like to come in? So by the end, Steve is willingly doing all these push-ups. His arms are shaking. He's dripping sweat, but he's doing the push-ups so that everyone can have a donut or, in their free will, refuse the donut. But he still does the push-ups. Jesus went to the cross for all of us. He substituted himself in our place. In our free will, we can choose to reject him, but he still went to the cross for us. In our free will, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can accept him and commit to him as Lord and Savior. He went to the cross for us. He substituted himself for us. He rose again for us, not for a donut, though I hope there's donuts in heaven, but for eternal life with him in unending bliss in paradise. And I wanna ask, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? The grave does not contain Jesus anymore. The stone was rolled away, and the stone was not rolled away for Jesus to get out. No. The stone was rolled away so you and I could look in. One of the funniest verses in the Bible, Matthew chapter 27, around verse 68, it's around that. Pilate, the governor, tells the Jewish leaders, go and make the tomb as secure as you can. They could not make it secure. There were Roman guards outside guarding it. They did put a seal around it. There was a one-ton one stone around it. It did not make it secure. Jesus rose from the grave. The Bible uses four verbs to describe our commitment to him. Confess, believe, trust, commit. We are called to confess we are sinners in need of a savior. Have you done that? That means that we repent of our sins. Do we realize that we are sinners? Do you recognize that we, all, we have all fallen short of the glory of God? I believe the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five, six, seven, is very evangelical. Jesus goes to great lengths to show you need a savior. 
Now, just follow me on this just for a second. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's thousands of people watching Jesus teach. Jesus would have the disciples right in front of him. And then he would have the common people. And then he would have the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you have to be a little better than the Pharisees to get into heaven. The Pharisees are doing everything. They're trying to keep the law. They're trying to, they're trying to keep the traditions. They're trying to do everything. And they are putting heavy loads on the common people. Jesus was a little bit of a shock jock there. And when he said, you have to be a little better than the Pharisees to get into heaven, I bet the common people are thinking, whoa, I can't believe he went there. They're going to crucify this man, which we know they did. But you know what Jesus was saying? Even the Pharisees are not good enough. Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you committed adultery in your heart. He is saying, you need a savior. We all have sinned and we need to confess we are sinners in need of a savior. We also need to believe. Believe Jesus died in the cross for your sins and rose again. Believe Jesus is your one and only savior. Believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. I think if I asked you one by one as you left today, most of you would probably say you believe. Many of you would probably say you've sinned and you've repented. But there's two more verbs. Verbs are action words. Commit and trust. We're called to commit to him and trust in him. We will mess up, but when we mess up, we just come right back to him and say, thank you for your forgiveness. Jesus forgives us. Are you committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in him as Lord and Savior? Please bow your heads and close your eyes with me right now. I want to ask you right now before the closing song, Where are you at? If you died today and you stood in front of God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Would you appeal to your good works? None of us are good enough. Listen, if you could be good enough, Jesus did not have to go to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because none of us can be good enough. If you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Would you say, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross? Are you trusting in him as Lord and Savior? Are you committed to him? If you have not, or maybe you've strayed from Jesus, maybe you need to rededicate your life to him. If that's you, if you would like to commit to him today for the first time or rededicate your life to him, I invite you to say this simple prayer with me. Just say it in your heart. Just say it to yourself, to God. Lord Jesus, I confess I've sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, Lord, I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I am committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, share it with someone today. You know that angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. And we were all sinners until we came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then we're still sin and mess up, but we're not considered sinners anymore. We're considered saints. God really strongly desires a relationship with you. So heaven rejoices when we commit to him as Lord and Savior. And I wanna also say, if you're sitting there thinking and you have questions, you have doubts, 
Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're antagonistic to the Christian faith. Maybe you have another religious view. If you have questions, I would love to talk to you. I'm not gonna try to salesman you into Christ. No, I don't believe you should become a Christian, commit to him until you're truly ready. I would love to talk to you and help explore those answers. If you're a Christian who has doubts, talk to me, I'd love to help you. Now I'll turn it over to the praise team.